Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today I've got somebody on the show who I've really been looking forward to talking to. He's an NFT artist. Uh, whose work out there has cumulatively sold for about $3 million. So if you want to go out and scoop up all of the Brian Brinkmans you can find out there, you're going to need about three or 4,000, sorry, did I say thousand? Three or $4 million. <laughs> um, he's also uh, a fascinating guy and has a really interesting backstory on how he, uh, as, as a visual artist, got into NFTs. Um, hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we met at um, a gallery opening, an NFT gallery opening in Venice a couple months ago. Um, that was really interesting. Um, one funny thing there was I got up the courage to go um, introduce myself to Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, who uh, is a huge idol, you know, like a huge hero of mine. And you might think it's funny, like as a reporter doing my job, I'll go talk to anybody, I'll introduce myself, whatever. It's not a big deal. But as a fan, it was really kind of um, nerve wracking just to go up to him and tell him like what a seminal part of my life like The Simpsons has been. So uh, that, was, that was a pretty uh, interesting event that we, that we had a chance to, to meet at. Yeah, no, I, I felt the same way. I mean, it was wonderful to meet you first off. I met you first. Um, and then, yeah, Matt Groening. I mean, in terms of influences in this culture, I don't think people fully grasp how important he is to like the last, you know, 30 years of entertainment. Um, yeah. It's just insane. And yeah, I mean, I, it probably had a big role in me going to school for animation and where I'm at now. So yeah. wow, cool. it, was, it was awesome to see him. You know, that was so cool. And I know you were so excited to meet him and <laughs> yeah. I'm glad it all worked out. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing watching that show as a kid. And, and then in my adult years, now I'm watching it with my kids and it, they get it just as well. You know, it's just, it's just that timeless sort of um, brilliance of, of the Simpsons. Um, but speaking of kids, I'd love to like go back and, and ask you where, um, you know, where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Uh, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and I was a, a pretty normal dorky kid. I played sports, not very well, but I enjoyed playing sports. Uh, but I spent most of my time playing on the computer. Um, I, I got into making graphics on the computer pretty early. And I would say, you know, when I was in early high school, I started making content, uh, animation content for websites like newgrounds.com, uh, which, you know, me, some people might remember, but it was basically flash web shorts and okay. you'd get this feedback and people would be like, oh, this is terrible. Get better. And you go, okay. Um, but that kind of like, you know, putting something out into the internet and then having people respond to it immediately, like that got me hooked. And I was like, okay, I want to make, I want to make films. I want to make short, I want to make cartoons. And then I went to, you know, that, that led me to go to college in Philadelphia uh, for traditional animation. Cause I wanted to. Yeah. It's an interesting point. I think in our age of social media right now, we might forget that like earlier internet, like it just, there wasn't that interaction that you could have with strangers, you know, I mean, especially for artwork like I remember early internet in the early 90s you know it was crazy to be in a chat room with somebody you didn't know who might be in Australia or whatever right? <laughs> yeah but yeah this is a whole nother level um were you um into like comic books and, and graphic art or stuff as a kid or what what got you into the sort of medium um yeah I mean I definitely collected some comics I was really into trading cards of all sorts whether it's sports or Marvel I was really into collecting Marvel trading cards and so I feel like I learned the Marvel universe through like collecting the full sets of Marvel characters and stuff like that um god you're gonna have to was... fill me in because I can't keep up man <laughs> <laughs> well I 
some of them come out now. I'm like, I don't even know who that one is. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I've always been a fan of that kind of content and cartoons and, you know, or like, again, flash cartoons. I was really, you know, back then it was like frog in a blender type goofy stuff, but like it was free cartoons you could watch on the internet all the time. And so yeah. that like, that was, that was the kind of content I was eating up. This is all pre YouTube. Um, was it, was it like the visual side that really appealed to you or did you like the storytelling aspect of like a comic book or? Um, I liked the humor of it. Um, a lot of it was crude back then, but it was still like, you know, short form content and, you know, on a technical level, the reason I think flash cartoons, I guess at the time, maybe it was called shockwave too. Um, there was something important there because video was super high, uh, file size. And so you couldn't fit any of that uh, online very easily. And so the way around it was creating these vector-based flash cartoons that could have a very small file size and play, you know, crisp, uh, visually, uh, in sounds, all this stuff within a fall, you know, those early internets when we were using dial-up modems and stuff. And so there was something interesting there. And so I think that just became like the way I was consuming content on the internet for a long time. Um, and then creating for it, I, I, I was using Adobe Live Motion and uh, Macromedia Flash to create all this stuff. And then you I can start. I still remember the yeah. icon when in my browser, like your Flash player player has crashed. You know. <laughs> yeah, the Flash player that was never up to date. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and then you know, once you start doing that, then you dive a little deeper, and then you start to make Flash websites, and you start to learn the basics of coding, and it becomes a rabbit hole that just goes on and on and on. Uh, yeah. But a lot of that stuff ended up evolving into what I did for. A living for a long time which is kind of motion graphics and doing you know special effects and visual effects and motion titles and all sorts of other stuff uh, for television and web yeah do you have brothers and sisters i do have a, I have a little brother matt similar oh, okay. matt, similar name um but yeah now he's um he's a musician uh in omaha um i find i find uh, most of my family are musicians i'm like the odd duck in that in that sense, I even though I think we're all using the same side of our brain, yeah. um, I went down the animation route. But I do think there's a lot of similarities between music and rhythm and animation and comedy. It all hits these similar patterns. And if you look at a lot of my work, there's there's a lot of rhythm to the motion. Yeah, I think they're languages of a sort, right? And and I, I don't think they're very far apart either. Um, so Omaha, Nebraska, one band I know from there is 311. Was that a big yeah. deal? Was that a big deal yeah, when you yeah. were a kid? Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I saw them a few times. They're, they were like the cool kids. And then when I got to high school, um, the music scene kind of evolved into this um, kind of indie emo space uh, led by Saddle Creek Records. So there's like Bright Eyes and Cursive and The Faint. And mm-hmm. so by the time I was old enough to have a car and go to concerts, that was the, those are the shows I, were, I was going to more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have a soft spot for 311. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I don't listen to much anymore, but I definitely have a soft spot for him. Um, you mentioned your family's got a lot of artists in it. Or were your parents artists? Uh, my, well, my father's. I'm sorry, musicians. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah, musicians. yeah. Both my parents are accountants, uh, but my uh, father was also a musician for, he's, he's still, he's in like five, six bands right now. Oh, cool. um, and so uh, it was like, you know, doing, doing taxes during the day and going to concerts at night. Um, so yeah, none of them are necessarily um, fine artists or anything like that, but definitely um, they encourage my creativity in a lot of ways. Yeah. So once you kind of got bit by the internet and you wanted more feedback, like what did you do? What, what were the next steps you took? Like, were you a serious artist in terms of like, were you um, not taking lessons or what, like, how would you describe like your artistic kind of output or what you were doing back then uh, as a teenager? Hmm. Yeah, I wasn't really taking, well, I was taking classes in school um, and stuff like that, but I was also, I spent a lot of time, my school had uh, a big graphic design program. And so you could- Is this your high school? My high school, yeah, yeah. And so uh, you'd go to these like two blocks of the day, which were Mm -hmm. a quarter of your day 
just learning photography, website building, um, design and animation, film editing and all this stuff. And it was just like, I would, I would make like, um, those panoramic quick time 3d things around the school. So you could like tour the school in different yeah. ways or like, right. it was like, it was just kind of like open to interpretation of whatever I wanted to do. And so during that time was when I was making a lot of these cartoons. And then I started, um, originally I, I thought I was going to go to college for graphic design. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, uh, around that time I had done an internship at, uh, um, I think it was Omaha magazine. And I saw the, the, the life of a graphic designer, uh, for a day. And I was like, Oh, this is not look fun. Um, it was, it was like really fine tuning pixels of like positioning. And I was like, yeah. this looks, you know, this isn't it. A lot and, of so then I, and so then I made a big, a big hard turn and I applied to some schools for animation. Um, and I got into a couple and then I, yeah, I went to Philadelphia and then I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to, this is where, you know, in the end, what I did after is definitely a mixture of both of those skills. Mm -hmm. Motion design is graphic design plus animation. So it's like, but in the end, I was, you know, I think it ended up working out for the best because I got. Yeah. That's one thing I like about your NFTs. There's motion in almost all of them. Um, so yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. Um, what was art school like? Were you like, did you feel like it was a bit of a gamble like, or were you, did you have a practical side to it as well? Um, I definitely felt like it was a gamble because in the end, I mean, looking back on it, I would say 10% of the people I graduated with in my animation program went on to work in the industry. It's, it's a tough industry to break into. Yeah. What I ended up having to do was move up to New York and kind of find jobs to fill that good in the end i'm not matt graining i'm not a disney animator um i'm much more rough around the edges with my art drawing style and so i went and found work doing you know motion design and website and again falling back into those jack of all trades that i could do for the first couple of years because i think right around that time i graduated was when the u.s got hit with that like big recession yeah, 2008. And so then, yeah, crisis. yeah, exactly. I graduated 2007, so I got my first job, and then everyone was like, "You're stuck here. Don't, don't go. The market's terrible. Stay where you're at." And so it was. I was doing that, but then I was doing all this extra stuff on the side to kind of supplement me artistically because it wasn't scratching that itch for me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, going back to college, um, it was a kind of a, a school. Even though it was a traditional animation school, it focused on experimental. It was more in line with, I would say, the Bill Plimptons of the animation world mm -hmm. than the Matt Groening's, or like. So it, was, it wasn't like training us to be a Pixar animator. It was training us to be a film festival storyteller, and so I think that was a, a differentiator between where I went and like maybe a Cal Arts or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So I love this story about you getting picked by Jimmy Fallon. Uh, to to see about like if if they could kind of why don't you tell the story about your your Twitter uh, <laughs> sure. experience because yeah, 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 I'm yeah. not going to do it justice yeah yeah well uh, you know I'm I guess this I'm, I'm based on you but it was like 13 it's probably like 13 14 years ago now um, the show late night with Jimmy Fallon just started prior to that I'm a huge sucker for going to live tapings of talk shows I, I, i'm fascinated by it i love it um and being a broke artist in new york it's like getting free tickets to go to a broadway show essentially um and so i'm i, I love taking advantage of that i'm very cheap I'm <laughs> but uh, uh i went to that one and um it was like the second week of the show and i was just excited to see it and then yeah i think they they kind of pulled me out and they did this experiment where they're like we're gonna have everybody follow you on twitter because twitter's this brand new social media that just came out like last month jimmy just joined it and um so we're in like 2009 ish 2008? i think i think 2009 might be right yeah um and uh and they had uh russell brand uh they had two guys from dig which includes kevin rose who's now a big part of the nft space um were guests yeah. and they were like you know they pre-selected me like right before the show or whatever to do this thing so I, I knew it was coming but then they were just like 
everybody follow Brian. And so, um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was, it was really intense because I got like, you know, 20, 30,000 followers like in a day. Wow. And then it was like, Oh no, what do I do? I was getting like text messages from random people that found my number on my resume online and all this stuff. And it's just like, it was very overwhelming and very scary, <laughs> but yeah. it was, it was exciting. Um, but then it was, yeah, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, now what? And then I, I wasn't in a position where I like, I didn't have a product to sell necessarily. I didn't really know how, how to utilize it. And so I just kind of had fun with it. I did like uh, crowdsourcing of assets to make short films with that I put into festivals later on. Um, I just kind of goofed around. Um, and in retrospect, I wish I had had you know, what I have now or something where I had like all these things I could sell and monetize and make a living off of it. But at the time it was just like, okay, this, this is cool. And then I think what ended up happening was I would say for the next seven, eight years, I just lost followers every day. <laughs> I'd lose dozens of followers it's just, a day. It's going the wrong every, way. Huh? <laughs> every time I tweeted, people would unfollow me because they were like, oh, he just followed for this goof. And then, and, but, you know, I would say, in the end, maybe like 10,000 of those people stuck around and they liked what I was doing. They enjoyed my art and they, they really enjoyed following me, but it weeded out all these people. I just did it for fun, but yeah. it was also very kind of, <laughs> it was a bit of a mental health problem of just being like, why do people hate me? <laughs> but, um, uh, but at a certain point, you know, you bottom out and then you regrow and you build. And now I'm, I'm well past where I was back then. So I feel really good about, you know, how things have gone. Yeah. It wasn't a forever decline. That's great. <laughs> what was, it's hard for me to even imagine what Twitter must've been like in the early days. Was it a nice gentle place or like, has it always been like kind of the way it is today where it's can be rather toxic and cutting? Um, well, it was, it was, it was way boring. I was like people taking photos of their food. It was everywhere at the time. It encouraged people to just tweet everything they did. Like, I'm going to the grocery store right now. Yeah. <laughs> it was very like people weren't using it in a, a marketing way or anything. And, um, everything was very rudimentary. Um, like the things we take for granted now, like retweeting wasn't a button. You had to write ret RT and put RT the thing and in and like, in the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was yeah. like, it, it reminds me of kind of like how NFTs are very early right now. And we're all kind of like figuring this out as we go and it's, it's improving. Uh, it reminds me of the early days of Twitter where like no one really knew what they were doing. You know, you saw some people finding success, but like, you know, yeah. Even back then, like you were talking about like kind of toxicity, like during that moment where I got all those followers, I had more followers than like Fox News did on Twitter. Like it was very early on. Um, and I, that was before anybody had over a million followers. So it was even then it was like, again, similar to the NFT space where it's a very, it was a very small bubble of people that were just enjoying the weirdness of it. Yeah. Um, and so we'll have to so, see what something Elon to, does, right? Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. So did that Jimmy Fallon experience kind of launch you into get, like, I know you went on to work uh, for the late show yeah. and for um, SNL. Uh, not, did that like yeah. kind of get you in the door somehow or? Well, not directly. I mean, what ended up happening was, um, I mean, if you want the, the secret behind the scenes, uh, the reason I was picked Please. out of that crowd is because a friend of mine from college worked on the show and he said, Brian's in the audience. He, he's probably down for this. Um, and so you had a Twitter account already, right? Yeah. But with like seven followers yeah. or something. Yeah, okay. um, and so, the, you know, they picked me because uh, someone, you know, two people on the staff knew who I was and knew I was there randomly at that, that day. So it was a lot of circumstantial things that worked in my favor in that sense. But then, you know, four years later, that artist, uh, my friend Edmund, he left the show to go direct other things. And so when he left, he threw out my name as someone that might be potentially someone that could take over since we both had the same uh, background. We went to college together. We had the same skill set. Uh, we collaborated on a lot of things. And so it wasn't necessarily a one-to-one, -one, like I was on this experiment and then I got the job, right. but it was more just, again, networking, being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people. Um, What's so, up, kids? Uh, it's important who you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And in the end, like by the time I got my got the job there, I would say 
80% of the staff that was there that second week had turned over and was no, no one even remembered it. Jimmy remembered and a couple other like people remembered it, but for the most part, nobody even knew what that was. Cause that was just one show yeah. out of a thousand shows, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, it just must become a blur for those folks doing that. I know. Well, by the time I had left there, I think I had worked on like 1600 shows. Oh my God. That's amazing. Um, and then you, it, so then was it to SNL, like Saturday Night Live from the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon? Yeah. Well, yeah, I worked on them kind of simultaneously because they're in the same building. There's a few floors apart and there's a lot of crossover since a lot of the, especially the union people that work on Fallon, like the cue cards or the camera people or the control room, they'll do Fallon during the week and then they'll do Saturdays on SNL. Okay. Um, it, Lauren Michaels is the EP of both shows. Um, and so what happened was, SNL would start to, they didn't have a visual effects department at the beginning, but they started to build it for the pre-tapes. And then they'd say, hey, we have this crazy bit. Can you come fill in on a Saturday, help us do it? I said, okay. And then that became more regular over and over. And then it, it kind of was like a bell curve where I started just doing it sporadically. And then I was like full-time a part of the team for a few years. And then I started to taper off again because there was a moment where you know, we're getting into the nitty gritty, but the Tonight Show, we were taping two shows on Thursday and having Fridays off, and that gave me more time so I could do two days of SNL and stuff yeah. like that. But it was a lot of like, yeah, I was just working six days a week making comedy for years. <laughs> yeah. And what, what what you were doing is like, if it's a green screen shot, then you're like creating the ba the background and everything that the SNL character or Jimmy Fallon is like, is, is a part of, right? Just for listeners yeah. to sort of like, Kind of like yeah, that's yeah. what the digital effects are on these shows. Yes, I would say both shows, even though I, I worked on them simultaneously, I did very different roles in them. Uh, at The Tonight Show, I was a graphic artist, and so I worked with a team to create the monologue jokes, the segment opening. So it'd be like, we're doing Tonight Show superlatives, and then it's like 3D book would open up and a title would fly across or something. Okay. Uh, I would create that. And then if there was music performances that had backgrounds needed, or if there was green screens or set pieces or whatever that was kind of again a jack of all trades graphic role and then at snl i was a part of the visual effects team which focuses primarily on the pre-tapes which are uh the two to three short films they make in a show it used to be kind of lonely island and it's like commercials music videos um you know whatever else uh kind of those fake documentaries about the show and those would um film on Friday and we'd edit and put them together on Saturday. Did you have anything to do with the, the Woomba commercial with the Woomba? It, it cleans my business, my lady business. <laughs> I don't like think that. I did that one. Oh. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, some of them, again, some of them are a blur, but I don't that's, think I that's one of my that favorite one. SNL commercials of all time. <laughs> um, well, I don't know if you listen to the uh, Mark Marin's podcast um, WTF, but he kind of has this obsession with Saturday night live. I think he, yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he didn't get, I've listened to quite a few of those. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't get, you know, he didn't like his audition went really badly and he had this thing out for Lauren Michaels for a long time, but so I've listening to him. So there, you know, a lot of SNL stories there. And then um, the, another one I would really like is um, smartless um, with uh, you know, the guys there, they have a lot of SNL guests on who are telling stories. Um, so I wondered if you had an, an SNL story that you could tell us uh, of something that, that was, um, crazier or wackier or just out of the ordinary oh man that's a good question um nothing too wacky um i got lucky there was an episode last year that i was asked to work on and i didn't go in and it was the one where everyone caught covid <laughs> so i got very lucky i was like i had to go to Omaha for the holidays and I missed it. And then on the road trip back, everyone was well, like, I'll let you think about it for a second and say here that <laughs> you've won two Emmys for your, um, for oh, your yeah. technically yeah. four, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the benefit of working at SNL is that it wins the Emmy every single year. It's a juggernaut in that category. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I, 
I don't have any insane stories. I mean, there's it's fun going to after parties and being around celebrities. Some of the f- most fun after parties to me are the ones that have music acts, mm-hmm. like seeing like Anderson Pock perform at like 4 a.m. Like those are awesome memories. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, those shows are like a massive amount of uh, stress. It's like an endure. It's like um, it's like a ninja warrior for graphics where you just like yeah because the timelines yeah. are really tight <laughs> yeah. right yeah yeah so you have in the, there's no extension it's live yeah, and yeah. so it's very much um working against a clock that's constantly ticking and it's like how can you do the best you can within this time frame and so yeah. uh they're fun in that they're a decathlon but they're also extremely grueling um but in the end it's everyone goes and has a drink afterwards and you let loose and you feel good about it yeah. Sounds a lot like journalism when you're on a big deadline, you know, Yeah, you, you got to hit it and then yeah, let's go to the bar. <laughs> so kind of in parallel to all this, were you like aware of Bitcoin and stuff or how did you, how did you find crypto for the first time? Um, yeah. So I, while I had some experience, I would say almost yeah, pre pre-Fallon when I was working at an MTV show and we were talking about crypto kitties and I tried to get a wallet set up and I could not figure it out. I could not figure out how to use Mount Gox for the best in retrospect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, what ended up happening was uh, in, I would say probably around December, 2019, uh, an artist I collect physicals of, which you can see one of his pieces in the background of my Zoom, Killer Acid, um, I'm a huge fan of his. He had started sharing that he was selling super rare gifts. And so that sparked my interest because, you know, I'd been making content for Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, whatever, blogs, all the stuff for years and years and years. And I was like, oh, this looks like it could be an interesting place for digital content. Yeah. Um, and let and me so, just jump in. When you were making that stuff, were you selling it as well? Or was that just like you just were doing your art and putting it out there? Or, or were you actually trying to have a part of your career as you know somebody who was selling private pieces? Yeah. So there was a few ways I would do that prior to NFTs, which was um, I did gallery shows in LA for a gallery called Gallery 1988, which specializes in pop culture art. So they're like, an official Rick and Morty art show and you do a piece for that or official Monty Python show, you do a thing based on focus features or something, um, MLB, whatever. I would take my digital art, I would print it on this printer behind me. Um, and maybe I can actually show you a piece, let's see. Eh, no. Um, but I would, I would print them on transparency paper, paint mm-hmm. them with paint, build them into a shadow box like an animation cell and then sell these shadow boxes of like faux animation cell scenes with depth. Um, And so that was my way of taking my digital art skills and figuring out a unique way of making it a physical piece of art because in my experience, people weren't buying digital art. Even if, you know, to a degree you could sell some of these like geekly prints or something, but like there's like $10 here and there. Um, And so that was kind of my thing I did for, I was quite a few years, like six or seven years. Um, at the same time, I would take my art and make music videos. I would do concert posters. I did all these other things. I did a lot of t-shirts. I would challenge myself to make a t-shirt a week. I would screen print them. I was always trying to figure out ways to take my digital art and find a way to sell it as art. And it was always very difficult. Um, I've, I've sold plenty of it, but it was never, it was always just a fun side project. A little, you know, it wasn't something that would be a, a sustainable career. Um, wasn't so an issue I, back then as well um, because it's digital before nfts and blockchain became involved you could just reproduce it a million times right so yeah the value yeah i wouldn't say i rare. was big enough for people to want to do that necessarily but um maybe maybe some people use them for like mood boards or something like that but i think you know that was that was kind of the logic behind those shadow boxes where the, I, I knew how much work and how to make them that I don't think anybody would go through the effort to try and do that themselves because <laughs> it would take, it would take quite a few hours to produce one. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of my way of making a, a one of one original. Yeah. That wasn't just a straight print. The same thing with like screen prints are a little harder in that sense. Um, 
I think Andy, so, Goldsworthy, Andy Goldsworthy has that going for him as well. You yeah, wanna, what's his work? Oh, you know, uh, he he does things in nature where he'll like um, collect icicles and make like really intricate sculptures like outside, or he'll collect leaves and put them in a pond that, that's just like amazing, and and then photograph it and and have it, have it filmed. So it's just basically and impossible and then it to replicate. Yeah, then that. it disappears. That's really and that's, cool. That's part of his thing. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And so then I think that led me to discovering super rare. And then I kind of deep dove into like Ethereum NFTs. Uh, I spent like a month kind of, I became fascinated with it, to be honest, for a couple of weeks. I was like, yeah. this is interesting. Like no one had really told me about it. I kind of just fell into it. Um, but I was like, I see a huge potential for because it it's a way for me to do animation as art which everything else i mentioned before was still and it was like in the end animation is my backbone i i love motion and i couldn't do that other than like making film festival films mm -hmm. um which is you know in all honesty a dying breed um we're not seeing a lot of film festivals anymore um and this is even even pre-covid it was on the decline sure um and it also lent itself to what I enjoy doing, which is short form. Making a, a festival film takes like a year of work. Um, and so I applied to Super Rare. I got on and then I just kind of experimented. I wanted to kind of, even though I had done all that stuff before, I kind of threw it out the window and started fresh. And I was like, I want to constrain myself in a way, but also not constrain myself. And by that, I mean, um, I chose to work within a color scheme through all of my work and so that I didn't have to get stuck doing the same style over and over, mm -hmm. which kind of goes back to the LA gallery stuff where people would tell me, you know, galleries want you to do the same thing over and over. What you're known for is what they want you to sell. And I understand that, but I, when I saw this space, especially because I, I didn't necessarily see NFTs as being a career I saw it as another form of experimenting and I was like okay well this is going to be my experimental thing I'm going to make experimental animation art with this yeah so you'll make um, a t-shirt each week and you'll make an nft each week yeah exactly yeah. and so it kind of falls into that same like you know what we, we've seen it with like people too where he does one a day or whatever like I think we all like to kind of work within a set of rules that still allow us to find creative outlets and so I think that's maybe that's just the way my uh, brain works but I like working within that like okay I can I can do a 3d piece here I can do a 2d piece here and I can change it up as much as I want and then a year later I'll have all these styles I can play with which yeah. then again ties into my background of going to experimental animation school or being a jack of all trades like I don't know what style I enjoy the most and in the end I'll probably get sick of any style I enjoy if I do it too much so I have to create that kind of outlet for me to change it up otherwise I'm going to get like you know burnt out yeah. I hope this isn't a dumb question, but um, when you started with Super Rare, did you just have to deliver the image to them and then they took care of the coding and the, the back end, you know, for, for it to become an NFT or, or were you also doing that as well? Um, well, they have a, um, a back end uh, uploading site. So you upload the image, you put in the description text, and then their contracts uh, mint it for you. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't have to write the contract. So you're sense. not, you, you didn't learn coding at the same time here. No. And I'm still not um, a solidity dev. <laughs> no. um, I'm, I, I know part of me was like, Oh, should I learn this? And I was like, no, I should just focus on the art and work with devs that actually know what they're doing. Cause yeah. uh, you know, as much as I enjoy coding, it's, it's, it's well beyond me. And we're seeing more and more people that think they know what they're doing that screw it up and it can have horrible uh, yeah. consequences yeah no kidding um and then you were mentioning you know that you got really excited about being able to do animation in the nft format what's the um what's like the limit on what an nft like lengthwise for like a, a piece of animation could you do a three-minute cartoon or do, are you still are you working in like snippets of seconds that's a great question um there's a lot of variables and it changes over time as well so like um that first like half year I was doing super rare um, MP4s 
QuickTime files or video files were not. Um, it's too much you know, data, right? Well, it just wasn't possible. They didn't have that yeah. coded in. And so there was a limitation of it. it had to be an animated GIF, which mm -hmm. I enjoyed because then you had a 50 megabyte limit that had to be a GIF format. And that, if you want it to be over like a thousand pixels, gives you about three seconds of time. Uh, but you you start to learn how to like extend frames in the GIF and all this stuff. It, it became a technical challenge in a fun way to see how much you could get out of it. And if you look at the early crypto art and even my art now, it's all about that perfect loop where you get this like satisfying loop. Right. And that was to take advantage of, even though it's three seconds, if it loops in a really good way, it'll feel like nine seconds before people start to catch that moment where it repeats. Uh -huh. um, and so there was there was a lot of that kind of like fun uh, gaming challenge to it of like, how can I get the most out of this? Um, and then once they introduced video, um, it's still like super rare has a 50 megabyte limit. I did a piece uh, a couple of days ago that's 4k so it's a huge file size it's 30 seconds long and i got it to be 48 megabytes um just so it fits um yeah. and so then but you you know if you make it a smaller ratio you can get it to be a three minute film or you know there's other platforms that have different file size limits so you probably get a lot more on like rareable or something so it's all there's so many variables but in terms of like super rare you got that 50 megabyte limit so it's just okay. a matter of squeezing it in whatever way you can to make it fit yeah um that's really interesting and are you still um did the people in your life understand what you're doing or are you, are you still having that, that like discussion of like no it, it's actually not just a jpeg of a cat <laughs> i think most people get it my wife's very supportive of it um and even my friends understand it and have tried it i think some of them are more questioning the longevity of the space some of them be like oh you know it's you know the market's down right now and some of them like, well, what if it ever comes back it's like well, I don't think that'll happen, but, you know, I think yeah. there's still a lot of doubts. Um, but in terms of, you know, where I back, say back then, two years ago, when I told people about it, I could not convince artists to join. Even when I was like, there's something here. People are buying digital art. There's something to this that's bigger than what we've seen before. And it was hard to convince people. Everyone thought I sounded like a crazy person. Yeah. I've looked back on some of those emails. I'm like, it's going to sound crazy, but <laughs> put this art on the blockchain, people will buy it. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, even then I wasn't, I, I, I saw the potential. What happened was a month after I joined the super rare COVID hit. And so um, my, I no longer had to commute into 30 rock. I still worked at Fallon and SNL for another year before I left. Uh, but during that time, I was like, well, I have all this free time, uh, not commuting in the morning at night, and I have no social life anymore. Like the, I, I do a comedy show in Brooklyn that got stopped for a while. Um, all these galleries were no longer doing shows. And so I was like, oh, I have all this time. And I got lost in the metaverse. I got went into crypto boxes, I went into discords, and I just became kind of I used that as my uh like my socializing uh needs right. in a way and so right. it, it kind of helped fill that void and then meeting all these artists in the space just became so creatively invigorating because I got to see what all they what they were doing how they were talking about the space the collectors that were buying my work were educating about the space like some of my early collectors I think are some of the you know, most important people early on, it's like uh, Jimmy.eth and Whale Shark and Pranksy and all these people that were like building really cool ways of technology and socializing and community. I got to learn a lot from watching them. And so, uh, yeah, I just got totally kind of like lost in it for a good chunk of time. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still lost in it. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I wonder what you think about this. If if I don't know the the history exactly, but 
the, the thing about NFT art that's great is that the artists, this is a new model for artists to get paid. And, you know, they're, yeah. they're working directly with collectors, like you just were saying. And then you can encode into your NFT, a, you know, a part of that contract that like you can take a royalty if it gets sold on again for, you know, a higher price and then a higher price. And so it's really flipped the um, sort of transaction layer of the art world, you know, and, and the, the gallery is no longer like as important. And I, I just wonder, yeah. have you ever heard, like, was that always intended or was that just like a, a great sort of consequence, like consequence or, um, you know, unintended um, consequence that came from that? Um, when I joined, there was an active rebellion amongst the artists and it happened it's like a month or two before i joined where the platforms now we've come to have an understanding that 10 percent royalty for artists is kind of a standard on the marketplaces but the time the marketplaces were starting to pull back on that and say maybe we'll do five percent maybe we'll do three percent for artists and the artists all you know to their credit, you know, Coldy, Matt Cain, Mocha, like all these people that really went into bat and fought all the marketplaces and were like, we're, we're the people that are giving you revenue, treat us with respect or we'll leave kind of thing. Um, they fought and got it pushed back up to 10. And so I was in a position where I kind of joined as that fight was getting won. Mm -hmm. um, but that 10% royalty is a huge reason why artists join the space. Because you, you're talking about the galleries I did in LA. Those galleries take 50%. That's the standard in New York and LA for a gallery. Wow. Um, and, and that's the only money you'll make from that piece. Exactly. And you yeah. don't even know where the piece sells to most of the time. Yeah. It's just lost into the world. And wow. so now the fact that we can trace who owns what is huge. Because one, it gives us a direct connection to the collectors in a way that I think is really healthy. Um, and then, yeah, I've seen a, a lot of my art flip multiple times. And, you know, early on, the money wasn't much, but like I sold my first NFT for $200 and then it sells at Sotheby's a year and a half later for, you know, $70,000. It's a huge difference. And you make so much more money on that secondary royalty that you never would have realized on that primary sale. And so, you know, there's, it, it's once you explain that to an artist and it's hard to take that away. Cause that to me is like the closest thing an artist has to a union kind of thing where a system that supports you and gives you royalties and yeah. kind of stuff like that, that hasn't really ever existed for animation or art. It's fascinating what you're saying about, and I didn't know this about the platforms trying to sort of like, I guess old models die hard because they seem to be like, okay, we're the gallery now and we're going to, we're going to kind of do what we want to do with the artists. But here it was, I'm really glad to hear that the artists were like, no, this is how it's going to work or we're walking. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I mean, I joined the space in the very beginning of 2020, but X copy and all these people were in the space for like two years before that really building it up. So, you know, a huge amount of credit goes to those early builders. Yeah. Um, and in the end, it's like, we're, we're still seeing a fight now with primary percentages. Um, you know, there's a, there's a wide range between 3% to 20% of what a platform takes from an artist. And is that it, kind of the range we're talking about with the different NFT platforms? Yeah. And it, I think it's a fair range. You, you know, you've got the nifty gateways, they're going to drive a ton of traffic. So they're going to take a higher percentage. You got the foundation, that's all on the artists to promote themselves. They take a much smaller percentage now. They used to take 15%. Now I think they take three or 5% or something like that. So I think it's all adjusting based on how much work the gallery does. But even at 20%, that's 30% less than those galleries took in the physical world. You know? So um, it's, all, it's all moving in a good direction for artists. Yeah, and on a bigger level, this, this conversation reminds me of, um, just wrote an editorial today about like, there was this letter sent to Congress, um, and, like from these technologists who are saying to Congress people, like, you really need to rein crypto in because it's dangerous for people. It's not doing anything new. It's full of scams. And 
it's like it was a lot of misinformation and a lot of I think willful ignorance and a point that they were making in their letter was like this isn't doing anything for anybody it's not helping anyone and we're having this conversation right now about how your art is like now you know basically sustaining you and you're having these great new um, interactions with your collectors and you know this is just like one little slice we could also talk about how musicians are using you know nfts to do things and um a lot of other things so it just, it just kind of struck me that um i think people who still are saying that this is a fad or it's all scams are just like they're either closed to it i think there's just no other yeah. way to put it at this at this moment well even you know it sustained me but it's also helped a lot of my collectors a lot of the people that supported me have seen you know, their money returned in a, in a wonderful way. Cause as I continue to grow more people buy my stuff and yeah. uh, you know, I've, I've had collectors come to me and say, you know, I, I sold, I sold this piece. I feel really bad, but I was able to buy an engagement ring for my wife, you know, my now fiance. And it's like, that's amazing. Like uh, that's, you know, that's the dream. I think the, the hope is that I, you know, flipping the art is one aspect of the value I, I hope to give my collectors, but I hope I can give them, a lot of other value in the meantime as well, whether it's, you know, airdrops or events or whatever. Um, can the community in my discord is wonderful. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of different ways that people can get value from buying art. And this in the same reason why I buy art from other artists. I buy a lot of the art I buy from artists without an assumption that I'll flip it, but it's more supporting an artist directly feels good and you get an amazing piece of art that's special to you. Yeah, exactly. I think it's there's something, something wonderful love. about that. Yeah, that's yeah. like this art in the background of my uh, Zoom. I'm probably never going to sell into that art. And I'm okay with that. That's why I bought the art was to look at it and enjoy it. And yeah. so I think there's a lot of different aspects to why I think, you know, this is all focusing on the art side of the space. I think there's, there's a plenty of legit criticism for the emerging gambling side of the space, um, which is a little more dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and another thing about NFTs that are really interesting, anybody in the world can view them and then there's one owner, right? But like, how often do you have that in the real art, like in the um, physical art world? It's, you know. Yeah. If you're lucky, there's a piece in a gallery somewhere or a museum, then of course there's the, stuff that's in somebody's house and you're never going to get to see that um yeah but, but anyone yeah, one of, anyone can enjoy any nft that's out there um they just don't own it you know unless they want to but um just to kind of finish up i was wondering are you paying attention to i think you know like you said earlier it's very early in nfts um and i think there's going to be a lot of new um novel uses for them um are you are you paying attention to that at all does that interest you um, just like new applications for it. Yeah. Just... Oh, always. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge believer in AR metaverse assets, mm -hmm. um, whether it's wearables, which I just did a drop with genies this week, or whether it's sculptures, I just did a drop with artifacts like two weeks ago, like how we decorate, like yeah, my, my, my thesis I've had for a long time is that you know, we're all going to be wearing glasses that are AR augmented. And as much as I love having this physical art, I could put all this other augmented art on my ceiling that I see um, yeah, or glasses, a sculpture right? or a sculpture yeah. on the floor. I think there's a lot of how we decorate ourselves and our environment is going to be the personality we project in the future digital worlds. And so as an artist and creator, I think building assets that are interoperable, instead of betting on land in specific metaverses, it's better to bet on interoperable assets that'll work in all of them. And so I wanna create more of that stuff. Um, I still think NFTs are gonna become more and more a part of ticketing. Um, and I think there's some interesting aspects of that that haven't, even if one, an NFT could be a ticket, but two, when you have that ticket, it can also give you merchandise or something. You know, there's all this other cool stuff or recording of the concert. You know, I feel like we haven't even touched the surface of what a ticket can be yet. Um, so I, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, I think it'll 
whether it's called an NFT or not, digital assets that are ownable will be a part of our lives in so many aspects. Do you think that will extend to um, some of the metaverse places like crypto voxels and Decentraland? Do you think people are going to get involved in it that much when they want their avatar to look a certain way? And, you know, you can have a Gucci bag that's actually from Gucci and it's not a knockoff. Um, like, I do, mean, do you feel that coming or is that just kind of pie in the sky? I do. I mean, that's why I did the genies drop, which I mean, they're going to work with fashion brands, I'm sure. But I think the question is, what will that metaverse be? Will it be crypto voxels or will it be Fortnite's new iteration? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of metaverses and that's why I'm like, not. That's why you I, want everything to interoperate. Exactly. Like I, I, I love crypto voxels. I own many plots and I love to build within it because I think it's the easiest to build for. And it's also the easiest to use on devices, but it's not necessarily growing at a rate that like say the sandbox is growing. And, but why is that sandbox is still in beta? It's like, I think it's, it's it, crypto voxel suffers from being a little rough around the edges and having a small team that doesn't drop things uh, very often, but I appreciate it. And I, I wouldn't be where I'm at now without having done a lot of stuff in crypto boxes over the last two and a half years. Yeah. I still, I still do with meetups with uh, token smart and um, uh, whenever I do like a drop on Nifty gateway, I think it's a great place to congregate, but I think, maybe the board apes metaverse will be the next big thing or maybe that's still two years out who knows but i have a feeling glb sculptures will work in all of them yeah i mean that's the wonderful thing about crypto is you don't know what's coming next just that something is coming next <laughs> yeah, yeah. No well every every game studio every triple a game studio i'm sure is at least considering the idea of building some sort of metaverse that has digital assets I mean, Fortnite already does with wearables, but it's just not something you can sell very easily. Right. Um, so it's just a matter of time, I think. But I, I would look at that's like why Axie Infinity that, is interesting, right? Because you could, you, that's a cryptocurrency you can translate into, you know, fiat currency, and and there you go. Yeah, well, same with like Cool Cats is doing milk and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's that's a trick in gaming, the play to earn idea. It, the question is, is play to earn fun or is it just work? <laughs> and I think that's where we Axie and all these other things, they're just grinds. They're not fun. And it's like, if, if I'm going to play to earn, I want to actually play, not yeah. work. Yeah. That's, a great point. <laughs> that's a great point. Um, well, hey, as somebody who's covered crypto for a long time, it, it's been really amazing to have artists and musicians kind of come into the space through the NFT kind of opportunity. It's just made it a lot more fun, a lot more interesting, uh, a lot more colorful. You're a great example of that, Brian. So thank you very much for what you're doing. And it was just a really a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much, Matt. I had a great time. All right. Take care. You too. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decentral.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decentral. Have a great day. <laughs>